Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. I am Simon Carley and I'm one of the associate editors and I'm going to be taking you through the highlights of what we've got in the journal in January 2019. Now, it's a new year, lots of things going on across the world, lots of really exciting things happening in emergency medicine, some fabulous conferences planned, some really exciting literature coming through and we've got some really brilliant papers coming up in the EMJ over the next few months, so keep an eye out for those. But in January, what have we got for you this month? Well, it's our lead editor, um, Ellen Weber, who has been steering the course for us very well, very nicely. I don't know whether you've noticed, but the impact factor has gone up for the EMJ. We're now over two, which is absolutely superb. It means a lot of people are reading it, a lot of people are using it. And uh, we're ever, ever so slowly moving up the rankings of international emergency medicine journals. So if you've got good quality stuff, you know where to send it. It's to us because we're really good and we want to hear and publish good stuff. And we've got plenty of good stuff this month. So the things that Ellen has picked out are um, interesting, actually. A whole variety of stuff. I'm going to start um, in a little bit of an unusual way, really, by pointing you to the, the View From Here article. And the View From Here articles are ones which Ellen brought in, I think, actually. And it's really to give a perspective of emergency medicine from one which is not normally your own. Because I think most people will be fairly familiar with their own systems. And it's only when you travel and you go around and you read and you listen that you realise that emergency medicine is actually a very different beast across the world. And we like to hear those perspectives. And I think we've got a couple of other ones coming in from Europe fairly soon. But this one is a bit different. And um, there's there's quite a lot of published and, and often quite poignant accounts by physicians of what it's like to be to be that person who puts on the backless hospital gown and becomes the patient. And I think there's quite a few books out there. There's quite a few films, actually, I think, thinking back to, was it called The Doctor? About the ENT surgeon? Anyway, I forget. But there's lots of that sort of stuff out there. But this, this story is different um, in that it's an account of an emergency physician finding himself on the other side of the curtain as his wife is treated for an emergency. And that's something which I think many listeners may be familiar with. It's a really difficult time. And it's not a story that criticises or praises our care, but rather one that reveals the emotions of those whose lives can, well, be irreversibly changed by the outcome of, for the loved ones, really. So above all, above all, it's a reminder that we have a duty not only to protect our patients, but to their families, to provide information, reassure when, when it's appropriate to do so, and have empathy. And to me, it speaks to the fact that we're sometimes caught in that unusual paradox in emergency medicine, that what can be an amazingly fulfilling, thrilling, exciting, challenging, courageous, amazing day is often the worst possible day for the patients that we're dealing with. And I'm sure you've heard that sort of thing, you know, oh my gosh, you know, it was amazing. I did a chest strain, there was a thoracotomy, we intubated someone. And yeah, it's great that there are people out there like you, like me, who find that sort of thing fascinating and exciting. But at the other side of it, there are families, there are patients, and they often carry the burden of their injury or their illness for much longer than the time that we spend with them. So it's a, it's a timely reminder, and I, I think it is a good one to start with. Perhaps not as positive as we want it to be for the beginning of the new year, but it's important. So after you've read that, I suggest we go and move you on to two related papers that demonstrate that the art of medicine is still alive, well, and as essential as ever. In the editor's choice, which is, of course, Ellen's choice, Babel et al. validated the Nexus 2 guidelines for head injury in children, modifying it by obviously 
having to remove the age criteria. The gold standard was a CT for those who got it, or they followed them up for 30 days if they didn't. And that's you've got to do that, really. You can't just go CTing every kid, particularly kids. So indeed, differential verification, but scanning everyone would have been essentially unethical and ridiculously expensive. It's just the wrong thing to do. So the rule performed pretty well. Uh, no patients were missed, but the physicians performed equally well, interestingly. Um, they didn't miss any patients either with significant intracranial injury. However, the physicians scanned fewer patients than the rule suggested. They were equally sensitive but more specific and saved some of these children unnecessary scans. Now, scans are something we're doing a lot of in my part of the world. I work in a paediatric major trauma centre and our rate of scanning has clearly improved. Well, it's increased a lot over the last 20 years where I've been working there. Um, I think we are getting better at selecting the patients, but I suspect that you, like me, will have patients in whom you think, "Mm, the rule says I've got to scan them, but do you know what? They look so well. They look fine, or I think they've got a viral illness. And sometimes we do watch those. So maybe this is something that we need to, as experts, and certainly when you've got huge amounts of experience, be able to use the guidelines as guidelines and not rules and protocols. Important point. Then we're going to go to Ed Carlton, who obviously is one of our um, associate editors on the journal, and reflect on the roots of the side effects of decision rules and guidance. And I think that's really important. And the implications of those findings for medical decision making in general. Really good editorial some of the things I've just been talking about now, but go and explore that. Ed's got a great brain on this sort of thing. So we've got two other studies examining the use of the ED by populations at either end of the age spectrum. Systematic review of parents' reasons for bringing their child to the ED nicely summarises data from a number of prior studies, including some of those that we published here in the EMJ. Shows that the most common reason for parents bringing their children to the ED is that they think they have an emergency. Well, there you go. And that's really important because, you know, if parents think their kid's having an emergency, they're not going to not come to the ED. You know, we've built emergency departments. People are going to come to them, particularly paediatric ones, as I well know. So ED staff are also perceived as having expertise with children, which is good. Uh, being unable to get a timely GP appointment is another reason for coming, which, of course, relates to the fact that they think their child has a problem that can't wait. That's the emergency thing again. And, yeah, some find it more convenient to attend after hours instead of missing work and something that's faster. Probably is, actually, in a lot of places. Um, but these tend to be turn out to be less common motivations for an ED visit with a child. It's, it's about the emergency. So prior studies have shown that most elderly patients who attend the ED, in fact, do have an emergency. It's true. And they often need admission, again, which is against a lot of policies about, you know, everybody can stay at home. Doesn't really work, guys. But could these emergencies have been prevented? Croft et al. used a novel approach to understand the missed opportunities in the system for elderly patients to avoid an ED visit. So they looked at HES data for 18 departments and they found a high admission rate, 34 to nearly just over 40% across facilities. Moreover, they determined that the over a third of these admissions were for potentially avoidable conditions. Although the proportion of short-stay admissions was lower than in young persons, probably makes sense with all the social stuff going on, avoidable conditions were associated with 42% of short-stay admissions in the elderly. So, whilst it's clear that many elderly adult patients require emergency department visits and admission, it does suggest that there may be opportunities to avoid some of these visits. Mm, Yeah. There's a lot of work around this sort of thing. It's with an interesting paper coming out in the February edition. Spoiler, can't talk about it now, which is going to shine some light from a systematic review of avoidance strategies for all patients, not just elderly. But there's some really good data there. Go and have a look at those papers, particularly as we'll be seeing that pressure. Both, I think, we really are feeling the pressure amongst the um, elderly uh, attendances and also paediatrics, which in our department has gone up quite a lot. Then we're going to go on to oligoanalgesia. Not easy to say. 
um, but not a good thing. In ED, it's a well-documented problem. But now Kant and colleagues from Australia got a paper. They've conducted an, you know, it's an intriguing study that asks analgesia in the emergency department, why is it not delivered? And it's true, you may think you're doing it, but you're probably not as well as you think. So it's a prospective study. Um, they looked through chart reviews of patients who had a triage pain score more than or equal to four. And looks to see whether they received medications. If they're not, then the nurse caring for the patient was asked to choose one or more reasons from a list after the patient left the ED. So two days later, the investigators called the patients asking whether their pain was treated, reason for not receiving pain medications and satisfaction with pain treatment. Overall, satisfaction with pain treatment was higher in those administered medications. Good. Whether or not they were aware that they had received any. Interesting. Um, and over one quarter of patients did not receive analgesia. And of these, well... Just under a fifth agreed uh, with nursing that medication was refused. Perhaps the most interesting finding is that amongst those patients who didn't get the pain meds, satisfaction with pain treatment was similar, whether they refused medications and or whether they did get it for other reasons. Interesting. I'd um, just like to throw in a quick one there about um, triage and distress. So pain is a really important thing, but Rick Body, uh, one of my colleagues in Manchester, did a great paper some years ago published in the EMJ um, that it's not just about pain, it's about what patients are complaining about, things like nausea, anxiety, stress, discomfort, and that kind of stuff. They're, they're also important as well. And so, but pain is probably the, it's, it's, pain's going to be a pretty good marker. If you're doing pain well, then if you're not doing pain well, should I say, you're probably not doing the other things well either. So have a look at this. It's quite interesting. And oligoanalgesia is clearly a problem. Also a bit of a shout out to some of the research out there that shows that we're not good in certain patient groups. We don't um, give out things like analgesia equally to people of different race and different genders alarming but true right that is the january edition of the emj podcast um i hope it's invited you to come and read the papers fully as we would say with any critical appraisal thing if you really want to get into the papers you have to read the whole thing and not just the abstract and certainly not just listen to me so get into the journal have a read of the other stuff there there's obviously the best bets there's some other stuff going on in there and get in touch through the usual channels have a wonderful 2019 and we will see you soon